mentioned a couple of weeks ago that whenever it seemed like Dad and I were chatting, that our conversations often drifted to the storms that we'd been in together when we were at sea. And the reason, of course, is that storms are more memorable than nice days at sea. Not necessarily more pleasant, simply more memorable. And it seemed that whenever the talk turned to storms, that inevitably there was one storm in particular that Dad would bring up. The year that I was in grade 12, Dad was working for Atlantic Towing in St. John on a salvage tug. He worked two weeks on, then he had two weeks off. And oftentimes, uh, during his two weeks off, he would freelance for other companies as a skipper. So for the pilotage authority, he would run pilots back and forth out to ships outside the harbor. Worked for a company that was dredging St. John Harbor for a bit. But he also worked for a company that owned a retired RCMP patrol boat by the name of the Buren. The Buren was 48 foot long and a little over 20 years old. If she had been a horse, she'd say that she'd been ridden hard and put away wet. And uh, now the Buren's sole function in life was transporting crew members back and forth to ships that were anchored outside of the harbor. Well, one winter night, a storm had settled into the Bay of Fundy, and Dad was on call for the Buren. I was in my, in my room doing homework. I was in my room reading, and, uh, and Dad came in and told me that he had got me some work as a deckhand on the Buren, which was kind of funny because I didn't know I was looking for work as a deckhand on the Buren. The storm had escalated to the point that they had shut down the harbor. Nothing was going out or coming in. Unfortunately, there was a ship anchored off the city that had allowed a number of their crew to come ashore before the storm had gotten worse. And now the ship had to sail, and the company that owned the Buren had accepted the job to get the crew members out to the ship. The problem was they had a skipper, but their regular deckhand refused to go out in the storm. And Dad said that wouldn't be a problem. He knew a guy. And he assured me I wouldn't have to worry about being sick, that I'd be too scared to be sick. And he was wrong. I was both scared and sick. It was the most terrifying night of my life. We were on this uh, little old XRCMP patrol boat. We had 12 or 15 crew members from a developing country. We're going out through. Dad's in the wheelhouse. I'm on deck with the crew. And we get out alongside of this ship. And Dad was an incredible ship handler. And so his job was to bring us in as close as we could. They had dropped a rope ladder over the side. The waves were, I don't know how high the waves were. I'll make it up. The waves were 1,000 foot high. So dad would bring the Buren alongside of the ship. I would hold on to the crew member. And as we got to the, to the top of the waves, he would grab hold of the rope ladder and we would disappear underneath him. That's how much they wanted off the Buren. They were entrusting their lives to a 17-year-old, right? We kind of hoped that we didn't lose anybody. We didn't hear anything, so we presumed we didn't. Um, and it seemed every time we talked about being at sea, dad would bring up the night on the Buren and how scared I was and how sick I was. And then he would laugh. And I'd remind him that I'd never gotten paid for that night. And then he'd laugh. (laughs) This is week three of our Weathering the Storms of Life series. On the first week, we looked at the storm of Jonah and the storm he found himself in. Remember, we learned five things from that particular storm. Not every storm is our fault. Every action has a consequence for others. Don't make major decisions when you're in the midst of the storm. No storm lasts forever. And the remedy for disobedience is obedience. Now, last week, we jumped from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We looked at the, uh, at the story of Jesus and the Sea of Galilee with the apostles, and the storm had blown up. And from that story, we learned that sometimes obedience leads us into storms, that Jesus is always with us in the storm. The storm teaches us about ourselves. The storm teaches us about Jesus. And it's easy to nap when you know who's in control. And again, if you missed those messages, the manuscripts and videos are available on our church website. This week's story comes from the book of Acts in the New Testament. So let's start with the backstory. 
story begins when the Apostle Paul comes back from one of his missionary journeys, and he arrives in Jerusalem to deal with some theological problems that he's been having with the early church, just differing opinions. So he's meeting with James, the brother of Jesus, and in the midst of that, he finds himself working, worshiping at the temple one day. And when he comes out, he's recognized by some of his former colleagues. Remember, he had been a Jewish religious leader who was persecuting the church when he got converted, and uh, now his compatriots weren't all that thrilled to see him back in Jerusalem. So we're told that a near riot breaks out. A Roman guard, a Roman officer who's nearby, sees Paul kind of being the instigator of the riot, and he has him arrested. We pick up the story here. As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, May I have a word with you? Do you know Greek? The commander asked, surprised. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? Talk about a case of mistaken identity, right? Paul tells the commander who he is, asks the commander for permission to address the crowd, which was granted. Paul proceeds to tell the mob the story of his conversion, urges them to embrace the claims of Christ and repent. Well, that goes over like Den trying to pole vault. The commander orders Paul to be whipped so he'll confess. They hadn't invented waterboarding yet. They were still whipping people. But before the whipping commences, Paul plays his trump card. That has nothing to do with the president. It is a winning card in a card game. We pick up the story in Acts 22:25. When they had tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Excuse me, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? Ooh, a bit of a blunder there. And the next two chapters were filled with intrigue and deception. The Jewish leaders conspire to kill Paul. The Roman commander hears the plot and transports Paul to the city of Caesarea to stand trial before the Roman governor, a man named Felix. Well, Felix doesn't want to deal with the controversy with Paul and the Jews, and so he leaves Paul in prison for two years. Finally, Felix is replaced as governor by Festus, who agrees to hear Paul's case. The Jewish religious leaders demand that Paul be returned to Jerusalem to stand trial before the high priest. All the while, they're planning on ambushing him and killing him on the way back to Jerusalem. Still with me? Governor Festus asked Paul if he's willing to stand trial in Jerusalem, and we read Paul's response here. Or here. Somebody want to click PowerPoint there for me and see what happens? Or we may not have PowerPoint. That's fine as well. But Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court. So I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar, which was Paul's right as a Roman citizen, take it to the highest court. And at that point, everything stopped. Kind of like if you're arrested and being questioned, once you ask for a lawyer, the questioning is supposed to stop. So if we keep reading, we discover in verse 12 of, of chapter 25, Festus conferred with his advisors, and they replied, very well. You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Now there's a whole side story that follows where Paul ends up stating his case and sharing his testimony with the governor and with King Agrippa. King Agrippa was just kind of a, a, a puppet king for the Romans, much like King Herod had been before him. But ultimately we arrive at Acts chapter 27, verse 1. It says, when the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. And this is where we discover the storm story. And things go to pieces here. Listen to some of the descriptions over the next 40 verses of what happens on their trip. Putting out to sea from there, we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. 
We had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally neared Sinus, but the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island past the Cape of Salomon. Acts 27.9, we had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. But the weather changed abruptly, and a, and a wind of typhoon strength called Northeaster caught the ship and blew it out to sea. About midnight on the 14th night of the storm, as we were being driven across the sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. And then finally in verse 41 it says, but they hit the shoal and ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship stuck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. I think I was on that trip, or at least on a trip like that, when a shipwreck would have seemed like a welcome development. And that leads us to the lessons from the story. The first thing is, sometimes a storm is just a storm. You remember in the story of Jonah, the reason that Jonah was in the storm was because he had been disobedient to God. God said go, Jonah said no. God said go east, Jonah went west. And because of his disobedience, he winds up in the middle of a storm. And we discover that some storms are caused by our disobedience. But last week, we discovered the apostles were obedient to what Jesus asked them to do. He told them to get into the boat. They get into the boat. He told them to set sail. They set sail. They did exactly what they'd been asked to do, and they wound up in a storm. Now, to be truthful, I find the first example a whole lot easier to understand than the second example. I can understand when we've been disobedient and we end up in a storm, but when we've been obedient? In the case of Paul, we don't see God telling him to set sail, nor forbidding him to set sail. It was a decision that Paul made, and as a result of that decision, he found himself in the midst of a storm. Sometimes we cause our own storms. You smoke and you get lung cancer. You cheat on your spouse and your marriage dissolves. You do something illegal, you go to jail. But I was at a funeral earlier this month for a lady who had never smoked, and she died of lung cancer. I've sat across people who were completely blindsided when their spouse walked out on them. And believe it or not, I've met innocent people who were charged with crimes. We are in a journey in this life, and it's not always a safe journey. Sometimes storms just happen. I would say that Paul was in the storm because of a decision he made. He chose to appeal to Caesar, and because of that choice, he was put on a ship and ended up in the storm. Remember I told you he had the opportunity to present his case to to Festus and Agrippa? When he gets all done with that, he leaves, the two politicians get into conversation, and we pick it up here, it says, Agrippa says to Festus, He could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Ooh, that would have been handy to know before he started, wouldn't it? Next thing is, storms don't always come alone. I'm sure that by the time they're in the midst of the third storm, they must have been thinking, surely this has to end. They must have felt like Mr. Murphy was sailing with them. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that every storm has an end. But sometimes there's another storm right behind the first one. Remember the Old Testament of Job? All of his livestock is stolen. His house is destroyed. His children are killed. Then he ends up with boils all over his body, one storm after another. On the 24th of November, 1992, the queen gave a speech to mark the 40th anniversary of her coronation. She began her speech with these words. 1992 is not a year in which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. If you don't speak Latin, that means a horrible year. That year, three of the queen's children separated from their spouses. The media seemed to take particular pleasure in picking at the royal family, and Windsor Castle caught on fire and was extensively damaged. And you know as well as I do, 
Any year that one of your castles catches on fire has to be a horrible year, right? Eventually, Job's storm, not, not the castle, one of the castles, right? Eventually, Job's storms ended. And for the queen, 1992 became 1993. For Paul and the crew of the ship, they, the storm finally blew itself out. And your storm will end as well. Next thing is, if there's something you can do, do it. If you read through the story, you see that the crew members are trying everything in their power to make it through the storm. Right? They make sure they bring their, their tender back and put it on board so they'll have a lifeboat. They wrap ropes around the hull of the ship to keep it from falling apart. We're told that they, they, they get rid of their extra cargo to lighten the ship. That they put out sea anchors for a while so they won't blow in to the coast of Africa. And then when they realize they're getting too close to shore, they set four anchors by the stern. They did everything they could humanly do. I know it's an old joke, but it's still funny. Well, the guy caught in the flood, you know, know the story. He's on the front step of his house, and the waters come up, and a guy comes by in a canoe and says, hey, jump in, I'll save you. And the guy goes, no, no, God will save me. Water keeps rising, gets to the second floor. The guy's looking out his window, a speedboat comes along. The guy says, jump in, I'll save you. He goes, no, no, God will save me. Water keeps rising, ends up on the roof. Helicopter comes along, lowers the ladder out, says, hey, climb up, we'll save you. He goes, no, God will save me. You know what happens? He falls off the roof, drowns. Gets to heaven, he goes, God. What's with that? And God went, hey, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Right? So often in life, we get things like that, but we keep looking for the miraculous. We don't realize that, that God is providing for us. Do what you can do. God is an awesome God. And God is a miracle-performing God. But God also gave us a brain to use. If you have a toothache, go to a dentist. If you're feeling sick, see a doctor. Take care of your car, your house, your health, your family. I know a lady who stopped wearing her glasses because she was convinced that God would heal her vision. And then she ended up with headaches. Maybe God had healed her vision by providing her with glasses. Next thing we learn is the consequence of the storm can outlast the storm. When the storm was over, Paul and Luke and the others were on a beach. Just not the beach they had planned to be on. Pick up the story in Acts chapter 27, verse 42 through 28 too. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship. So everyone escaped safely to shore. Once we were safe on the shore, they were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. You know, in the first two stories we looked at, the story of Jonah and the story of the apostles, we saw storms that suddenly stopped, right? It was miraculous the way they ended. The wind stopped blowing, the sea becomes calm. But even in that, there were still consequences to the storm. I'm sure that some of the sailors who threw Jonah overboard lived with that decision the rest of their life. They didn't know what happened to him. As far as they were concerned, they had killed him. They had to live with that. The apostles, when their storm died down, it changed their lives. They now knew that Jesus was God, and they went on to make decisions based on what they learned in the storm. When a storm leaves you without a spouse or without a child, you're never the same. Sometimes a business failure allows you to change direction or forces you to change direction. Because Paul and Luke ended up on the island of Malta, they were able to share the gospel with people who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. Recently, I bought a print from our very own B. Stanton. We'll embarrass B. Are you here, B? You're there. Look. 
Right here, it says, I love these. They're all kind of East Coast, Nova Scotia flavor. It says, a wise old mariner perhaps once said, never grumble of how the winds they howl. It's one of the few things in life you cannot change. You can't change the wind and the storm, but you can change how you react to the consequences. B has all kinds of prints. I'm not on commission, but she does. If you're looking for a gift for people on the East Coast, talk to B. But those go along with what Bryant McGill wrote. He said, when the storm rips you to pieces, you get to decide how to put yourself back together again. You'll decide if you'll simply go through the storm or if you'll grow through it. You'll let the storm make you bitter or you'll like, let it make you better. And finally, never forget God is there. In the middle of the storm, in the middle of the storm, Paul took time to pray. In the middle of the storm, Paul took the opportunity to thank God for being with him. In your storm, claim Isaiah 43, verse 2 as your own promise. When God said, when you go through the deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fires of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. It was because of Paul's confidence in God's presence and God's promise that he was able to encourage the rest of the passengers in the crew. You don't know who might be watching how you respond to your storm. So a couple of thoughts. So we'll let the reader answer the question for himself. Who is the happier man? He who has braved the storm of life and lived or he who has stayed securely on the shore and merely existed? And here is the promise from the past two messages. When the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away, but the godly have a lasting foundation. I don't know where you're at today. I know some of the storms that people are going through at Cornerstone, but not all of the storms. But understand, the promise of God is real. The promise of God is real. And I'm praying for you this morning. I, I want to lift a couple of verses out of numbers. So let me pray for you. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.